0: Listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica, with your host Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 14 of Spyclopedia Number One, William Stevenson, Part Three, or Nation of Monkeys. Today I'm recording from 1251 Avenue of the Americas in New York City in the summer of 1941. William Stevenson's British security coordination brought over a Hungarian named Louis de Waal, who was already a famous astrologer. Although controlled by Stevenson, he was under strict orders to never show any particular interest or mention of Britain. His mission was to shake the American public's confidence in the invincibility of Adolf Hitler. Now, this was more advanced stuff than just throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. They planned that DeWolf's first prophecies in the United States should coincide and harmonize with other prearranged astrological and magical predictions of Hitler's fall that were being made in other parts of the world. This was a plan not just to influence the US public, but to freak out Adolf Hitler himself, who was known to be intensely superstitious and a great believer in astrology. When DeWall first arrived in the U.S. in New York City, he held a press conference, which William Stevenson organized, where he predicted Hitler's fall was certain. The planet Neptune, he said, was in the house of death, making for a mysterious fate, and soon the progressed ascendant would be in a place where Neptune was at the moment of Hitler's birth. That very summer, DeWall said, Uranus would bring the birth constellation into effect, with grave consequences for Hitler. Just a few days later, other stories began to emerge. In Cairo, an Arabic newspaper carried a statement by the Egyptian astrologer Sheik Yusuf Afifi predicting Hitler's death. Four months hence, a red planet will appear on the eastern horizon and indicate that a dangerous evildoer who has drenched the world in blood will pass away. That means an uncrowned emperor will be killed, and that man is Hitler. American correspondents dutifully reported the news. Then, at the same time, correspondents in Nigeria filed a story about a priest named Ulo who saw a vision. In the light, I saw a group of five men on a rock. One was short, with long hair. The second was fat and shaped like the breadfruit. The third monkey-faced and crippled, the fourth had glass in his eye. The fifth was leopard-faced. After a quarrel, the fifth vanished. The cripple stabbed the breadfruit man in the back. The long-haired one cursed the glass-eyed one and pushed him from the rock. Then the cripple jumped from the rock, leaving long hair alone. hair seized the crown from the rock, but it did not fit his head and fell off. In a wild rage, Long hair slipped from the rock and fell, shrieking like a madman. The crown was left in its proper place in the middle of the rock. The Nigerian had described Hitler, Goering, Goebbels, Himmler, and Hess. Also, Ulo was clowning on the Nazi leadership pretty hard with these descriptions. Then, Stevenson contrived for DeWall to come up with a prophecy that would actually be fulfilled. After consulting with the stars and with British secret intelligence, DeWalt prophesied that one of Hitler's allies would be found to be mad. Within a week, Admiral Robert, the Vichy French governor of the French West Indies, which was closely monitored by British security coordination, of course, this Admiral Robert was reported in the press as having gone stark raving mad, screaming all night. The press was very impressed by De Waal, who then toured the country, and everywhere he went, he <coughs> De Waal, De Waal declared that Hitler's fate was all but certain. The public was very impressed by De Waal, who then toured the country, and everywhere he went, he declared that Hitler's fate was all but certain. He also attacked the Vichy French ambassador and Charles Lindbergh, saying that Lindbergh was part of a plague of technology which makes the weak-minded believe that a man who can handle machines well must be an authority on things of the spirit. Which I mean, like, facts, right? That's a pretty good burn. Naturally, DeWall spelled doom for Hitler's invasion of Russia, and he also said that FDR had a glowing, beautiful horoscope. Finally, DeWall prophesied, Hitler is on the downgrade turning point came when Germany invaded Czechoslovakia in March 1939. We can't predict a date for his defeat, but if the United States enters the war before next spring, he is doomed. Which, of course, the United States did enter the war before the next spring, and Hitler was doomed. De Waal returned to Britain, having accomplished his mission. This is some heady stuff. It's hard to quantify the impact of an operation like this, but considering the relatively low costs, it was probably worth the effort. We'll see a few more of Stevenson's tricks before we're through. Let's get into it. Vichy France was another major opponent that Stevenson had to face. Not quite as much of a threat in the United States, but certainly still a power in the Caribbean. In the field of economic warfare, the Vichy French tried to buy the rights to the Bren gun in the United States. This could have created supply problems for Britain, but Stevenson's organization stopped the deal. The Vichy French also tried to work out a deal with Western Union to build a wire station off the coast of Newfoundland. This would have allowed them to communicate anywhere around the world via radio telegraph. However, William Stevenson was friends with Vincent Astor, and Vincent Astor was on the board of directors for Western Union, so he got Astor to squash the deal. Stevenson also cultivated a pretty high-ranking source within the Vichy embassy in the United States, crook named Jean Moussa, who was the ambassador's personal secretary and homme d'affaires. Moussa also ran schemes like running a dollars-to-diamonds-to-francs exchange scam, he would buy and sell food parcels into occupied territories, selling passports, and, I kid you not, selling exit visas in Casablanca. He'd organize refugees on, onto French vessels, for a price of course, and seemed to have something of an intelligence ring using French girls to infiltrate American business firms. Stevenson wrote a comprehensive report using Moose's intelligence, which he gave to FDR. FDR said it was the most fascinating reading I've had in a long time, and the best piece of comprehensive intelligence work I've come across since the last war. Stevenson got approval from the State Department to run operations against Vichy France, but not to declare total war. There was an interesting battle over French art collections in the United States, with the Vichy government seized, seized French collections and they were going to sell them to, to fund subversive activities on behalf of the Nazis. The collection consisted of some 270 paintings and drawings by Renoir, 30 paintings by Cezanne, 12 by Gauguin, Seven by Degas, also some paintings by Monet, Monet, and Picasso. One of the BSC agents and author of Room 3603, H. Montgomery Hyde, was involved with the operation to board the American cruise ship Excalibur, break into the safe room with oxyacetylene torches, and recover the paintings, which they did. The paintings were then sent to Bermuda then to Ottawa, where they sat out the war in the Canadian National Gallery. I could not confirm if these paintings were returned to France, though I imagine they were, since the French are white. The main form that the fight against Vichy France took in the United States was mainly that William Stevenson would take everything to the press. There were constant damaging articles being published due to Stevenson's leaks. The Vichy ambassador called these leaks a de Gaullist Jewish-British FBI intrigue, but he never specifically suspected Stevenson's BSC. Probably one of the most valuable operations that Stevenson ran against Vichy France, though, was when he got a female agent, codenamed Cynthia, to infiltrate the Vichy Embassy, where she obtained nearly every telegram the Vichy Embassy ever sent. She also obtained plans for them to sabotage U.S. naval factories and the sabotage was therefore prevented. Cynthia also got the Vichy French naval ciphers, which is to say that Cynthia pretty much got every single secret piece of information you can possibly get from an embassy. She also got the naval ciphers from the Italian embassy. Cynthia was a tier 1 operator. She was a super spy. I might do an episode one day on Cynthia, but we'll see. There are some good books on her, but... I mean, it's a fantastic story, but we gotta keep moving. Also, just as a disclaimer, there are people who dispute aspects of Cynthia's accomplishments. But, we'll address those if, we ever, if I ever do a full episode on her. We'll see. Also, to Cynthia's credit, and not to diminish her accomplishments, assuming that they're accurate but it goes without saying that the French were definitely not clear about what they should do regarding Vichy France and Free France, and a lot of them were very conflicted about it. That was the in that she used, since is it really treason to betray the Vichy regime? They're a puppet of the Nazis, after all, as the argument goes. Along the same lines, the Free French wanted to do a coup against the Vichy French in Martinique, in the Caribbean. If they pulled it off, they would have access to the $245 in French gold reserves. General de Gaulle very badly wanted this gold, and he needed it for his exile government and resistance movement. Martinique itself was already under British naval blockade. The US State Department wouldn't let them do the coup, which from the intelligence community's standpoint, That's a good example of why you never want to let the state department in on anything. They won't let you do fun things like that. Ultimately, they ended up waiting out Martinique using an economic blockade. And eventually the Free French still took over the island, on Bastille Day actually, in 1943. Now let's talk about economic warfare again. Especially what happens when you take the concept very seriously. Many of my listeners, especially those of you who have listened to the Who Financed Hitler episodes, will know that war is a celebration of markets, and the murder and violence can be left to the non-professionals, as Pynchon puts it. But from the standpoint of the British, they wanted the US to stop trading with the Germans, and getting them to do that was a war aim. They would insist on a kind of moral consistency as a pretext for helping British war goals. The fact that it also happens to be the right thing to stop trading with Germans when you're in a war with Germany, that came secondary to the British, but it's still the right thing to do. All of this is a long-winded way of saying that the British started going public with all of these uncomfortably close connections between between U.S. and German companies. Hugh Dalton, the British Minister of Economic Warfare, gave an interview with the U.S. press and stated that the U.S. should blacklist German firms doing business in the United States. Trading with the enemy, in other words. He listed off several obvious examples, like the General Aniline and Film Corporation, the Sharing Corporation of Bloomfield, New Jersey, and the Pioneer Import Corporation of New York, all of which were subsidiaries of German industrial or commercial concerns. Then Hugh Dalton dropped a bombshell, In the same interview with the press, he mentioned Chase National Bank as doing business with Germany. (laughs) The statement provoked very strong reactions, and the Secretary of State was said to have been very angry at Hugh Dalton. But would it surprise you to find out that it was true? And the claim was based on William Stevenson's intelligence, which showed and documented Chase National Bank's many dealings with the Reichsbank. I would like to read a passage from room 3603 directly since I can't rephrase it any better. For a considerable number of years before the war, large German industrial corporations such as IG Farben and Schering AG had been methodically consolidating their interests in the United States. This was done in two ways. First, through the branches and subsidiaries in the U.S. of German-owned companies, which were usually camouflaged by neutral ownership in Sweden and Switzerland. And secondly, by the secret cartel agreements of German parent companies with their American subsidiaries. When Germany went to war in 1939, this vast and intricate network of companies became the backbone of the German intelligence and propaganda systems in the Western Hemisphere. And its existence endangered the security and economy of both Britain and the United States. To devise a means of combating and, if possible, of liquidating it, was one of the most urgent problems confronting Stevenson on his arrival in New York. Stevenson had to do several things. First, he had to prove the relationship to Germany, and second, he had to undermine them in some way like exploiting technical problems, usually this took the form of the antitrust nature of the German cartel system, or to otherwise harass them in the courts. This was not without risks, since most German subsidiaries were operating as American companies employing American workers. So, public interest required them to be handled delicately. First we'll talk about Sharing AG. The first company Stevenson went after was the German pharmaceutical company Sharing AG which owned the U.S. subsidiary Sharing of Bloomfield, New Jersey. They hid their ownership via two Swiss holding companies, which were controlled by Sharing AG in Germany. The U.S. subsidiary Sharing of Bloomfield was run by a Jew named Julius Weltzin, who was too valuable for the Nazis to replace or liquidate, so he was sent to run operations in the United States. I'm sure he had some very interesting psychology going on, like the German-Jew spy from the last episode, but I suppose not everyone knew about the Holocaust yet. The American subsidiary and the German parent company knew about the Bermuda censors, so they were consequently very, very careful in their communications. On paper, they were supposed to be completely unrelated, and that's what they testified to to the SEC which of course was perjury. An employee at the American subsidiary figured out their relationship to their parent company and approached the State Department, which was not interested in taking any action. The employee then approached the Department of Justice, which said that there was no legal action they could take. The employee was then contacted by Stevenson's British Security Coordination, who had them go back to their job and gather evidence. William Stevenson's forensic accountants conducted an investigation and wrote up a dossier that showed how products and contraband manufactured by sharing of Bloomfield was being sent to Germany. They also showed that half of the company's profits were being transferred to Berlin through Switzerland. This was equaling roughly $2 a month in the year of 1940. Finally, the dossier showed beyond a shadow of a doubt how they were operating in cartel agreements contrary to the Sherman Antitrust Act. Stevenson took this evidence to the Department of Justice and the press, thereby ensuring that it would be acted upon. It was reported on in a thousand newspapers, as well as radio and magazines. Sharing of Bloomfield was fined $15,000 and its officers fined 2000 each. Additionally, its board was purged of all members of German origin except for Julius Weltzin, who of course was a German Jew, and the Swiss bank corporation was ordered to divest itself of the stock it held in sharing of Bloomfield. The Canadian subsidiary was seized by the Canadian government, and after Pearl Harbor, the US Treasury took full control of the sharing corporation of Bloomfield. Sharing became a company completely independent of German control. Later on, it merged with Plow to form Sharing Plow in 1971. They still maintained close ties to Bayer. Bayer, of course, was one of the three companies when the U.S. broke up IG Farben. In 2004, Sharing Plow was accused by the New York Times of making payoffs to doctors to get them to prescribe their drugs. In 2009, Sharing Plough merged with Merck and & Company, and now operated under that name. Sharing Plough developed Claritin and Clarinex, as well as Dr. Scholl's foot care products and Coppertone. Now, a much, much tougher target was IG Farben. And a little spoiler for you: much further down the line, I will be doing separate episodes on IG Farben. But relating to this story, and specifically William Stevenson, In talking about IG Farben, an official of the Antitrust Division of the DOJ of the Department of Justice described IG Farben as an agglomeration of monopolies and an aggregation of cartels. Do you remember the speech from the movie Network? There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide, and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. So IG Farben's principal US subsidiary was one of the companies denounced by Hugh Dalton, namely the $62 million General Aniline and Film Corporation of New York, which before the war was known as American IG Chemical Corporation. This company had strong ties with Sterling Products Incorporated, which was the largest drug company in America, and, of course, with the Bayer Group, which Sterling controlled as well. This company also had ties with Standard Oil of New Jersey and, of course, Ford Motor Company of Detroit. In fact, the Ford Motor Company of Cologne was a wholly-owned subsidiary of IG Farben. Well, 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 what do we have here? What's that? Is that more Henry Ford links to the Nazis? Since IG Farben was simply too large and powerful to take over, like sharing a Bloomfield, they tried something else. William Stevenson wrote a pamphlet called Sequel to the Apocalypse, the uncensored story of how your dimes and quarters helped pay for Hitler's war. They sold this pamphlet at a loss. It had accurate information about the financial ties to the Nazis. But it also contained several rumors, also known as lies, designed to keep the US public from wanting to buy IG Farben's products. In one story, British bombing supposedly destroyed the recipe for certain prescriptions, which they kept manufacturing incorrectly, thereby killing many people. It's kind of a stretch, but it's interesting nonetheless. The managing director of Standard Oil of New Jersey, whose relationship with IG Farben was clearly indicated, told an American contact of Stevenson's that he would give $50,000 to know who wrote the pamphlet, Sequel to the Apocalypse. If nothing else, the public outrage caused the German-born director to resign, and the company was hit with light fines. So here we can sort of see the limits of Stevenson's British security coordination. IG Farben was much too powerful for them to take down. Another company they went after was Pioneer Import Corporation, which dealt in various commodities like hops, tulips, glue, synthetic stones, and diamonds. Stevenson's agents carried out an investigation which revealed that the Nazis had looted diamonds from Belgium and Holland, and that the Pioneer Import Corporation was selling those diamonds in the U.S. using false certificates of origin. Stevenson turned this over to law enforcement and got the CEO of Pioneer Import Corporation fined $10,000 and imprisoned for two years. The CEO's personal funds were seized and in the raid, they took semi-precious stones worth $400,000. Additionally, Stevenson's British Security Coordination uncovered information showing German ownership of over 100 subsidiaries in the U.S. He turned all that information over to the U.S. authorities. It allowed the Office of Alien Property Custodian Agency to seize the assets of these subsidiaries amounting to some additional $260 million. To be sure, you can't chalk up all of that just to Stevenson, but he was certainly helping. Stevenson's people were watching for suspicious Germans entering the United States, and in March 1941, a Dr. Kurt Heinrich Reith entered Texas from Mexico. Dr. Reith's father had, a, had made a fortune as Standard Oil's representative in Antwerp, and he was a member of Germany's diplomatic service, with deep ties to South America. Dr. Reith settled in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and somewhat conspicuously started to meet with German officials and U.S. oilmen. Doing some digging, Stevenson's people found out that the purpose of Dr. Reith's visit was to negotiate the sale to Germany of Standard Oil's Hungarian subsidiary company, known as MAORT, Short for Magyar Amerikai Olajipari Rezveni Tarsaság. He also discussed with Standard Oil representatives the question of patent agreements between his company and, our, and IG Farben. Much more on that in the uh, much, much more on that in future IG Farben episodes. Stevenson leaked the info of Dr. Reith's visit to the New York Herald Tribune. I don't know if you're noticing a pattern with the New York Herald Tribune. This eventually got the FBI to deport Dr. Reith, as he had lied on his visa application about the purpose of his visit. British security coordination was also concerned with smuggling, as there was a British economic blockade. Smuggling could be very profitable, especially for citizens from neutral countries to try to make some money doing some light smuggling. By necessity, the stuff people would smuggle, of course, would be high-value stuff, like radios, diamonds, platinum, other rare minerals, sometimes ball bearings or machine tools, cash, drugs, microfilm, documents, radium, postage stamps, and so on. In 1941, the classified advertisements columns of newspapers in both North and South America were full of notices inserted by seamen who wanted to serve as a contractor or undertake important confidential commissions, which is to say, smuggling. So Stevenson could not stop the flow of goods, but they could often reduce it and catch some of the most important and or flagrant smugglers. One way they did this was to get a sailor on the payrolls of every single ship to look out for certain things, and this was especially valuable if they would also look out for overt espionage-related activities too. More often than not, they also recruited the captains of these ships. This was of course expensive, but worth it, as you might eventually guess with some degree of certainty on a long enough voyage, who might be an Axis agent after weeks and weeks of close quarters contact. Captains also wanted to cooperate because if they did, they could often get easier, quicker passage through British control points throughout the world. Sometimes, the captains would even announce that they were about to be boarded by British ships. The idea being that if they announced it, sometimes you could flush out any Axis spies who would then start freaking out or maybe, you know, trying to hide any of their smuggling. This trick did work on flushing out some spies or smugglers on several occasions. This program caused friction with US authorities, so Stevenson eventually handed it over to the Office of Naval Intelligence, which is something very interesting to think about, that the Office of Naval Intelligence maybe still has agents on civilian ships. But Stevenson's group still discovered all kinds of interesting things. In particular, They found one weird pattern that had triggered MK Ultra sirens going off in my brain. Let me quote from the book. They noticed that Germans were smuggling butterfly trays from Brazil. The latter provided a constant puzzle for British authorities, with their brightly colored butterflies' wings arranged in variegated patterns underneath the glass tops of the trays. The Germans bought them in vast quantities, But neither Stevenson, nor, for that matter, anybody else was ever able to determine whether their interest in them was economic or merely aesthetic. On several occasions, suspects were reported to be handling these trays, and one of Stevenson's reliable agents reported that he had seen some women employees in the German Embassy in Rio taking the trays to pieces and putting them together. It looked as though they were possibly being used as a means for communicating secret messages. After much difficulty and after many trays had been smashed in transit, some specimens reached London intact and were examined with great care, but nothing of any consequence was discovered and the mystery of the butterfly trays remains unsolved to this day. For what it's worth of course, butterflies have often been asserted to be a sign or trigger of MKUltra and or monarch programming. It has also been asserted that Nazi Germany had been researching along these lines before the US began their programs. I am agnostic on the question, but it is certainly weird and interesting. Let's talk about the South American situation. There were many, many Germans in South America, so there were considerable ongoing risks to British interests. For example, Uruguay was in serious danger of being subject to a coup by pro-Nazi Uruguayans led by a German citizen named Arnulf Fuhrmann, who had formed a plot to take over the country. FDR could not commit any warships to go there, but he approved an aggressive counterintelligence operation to be run by the FBI and by Stevenson's team. The South American operation was named Station M, Probably so named because it was run by Eric Mashwitz, who is a pop song composer. He was a very, very interesting guy. Maybe more on him in the future. Because he, among lots of other things, probably helped the BBC develop Doctor Who. And he had a pretty long career in television. So Station M got up to some pretty black arts. And for what they were going to do, they really only needed three things technical equipment in the form of special inks and papers, a certain amount of accurate information on targeted individuals, and an amount of inventiveness based on a sound appraisal of political conditions. Papers and inks were easy to obtain. The accurate info on targeted individuals came from the Bermuda censorship stations, and Mashwitz provided the inventiveness. They were going to run a counterintelligence program to wreak havoc on the Uruguayans and the pro-Nazi faction, and the pro-Nazi factions in all of South America. The tools they were using were fake documents and disinformation. In one case, they took real letters from a Czech collaborator writing to his family in Chile. Then they added fictional elements like a half-Jewish ex-wife. They also added some gnomic yet incriminating statements like Father caught 75 fish on Wednesday the 17th, brother was not well but caught 82, and I was knitting Carl a sweater in which I had to use 14 feet of wool, each 60 feet long, although two were only 28 feet. The Nazi censors assumed that this Czech collaborator was writing in code, although he had not written those lines. This led to his execution. Station M ran a letter-writing campaign that was designed to cause alarm among the Latin American Nazis. Station M examined real correspondence between targeted Nazis and their friends and family all over Europe. Then they wrote fake letters from those same people, including subversive material that showed a lack of faith in the Axis, but not obvious enough to sound like propaganda. Hearing disheartening defeatist news from their loved ones in Europe naturally weakened the morale of the Latin American Nazis. And even if this were discovered, it was likely to trigger paranoia. By the way, as a side note, the FBI used these same tactics, of course, against the Black Panthers. They definitely learned these tricks from the British. Station M also played a game called Vic which had been invented by a exiled Polish professor who was a sabotage and resistance expert during the First World War. Described as a fascinating new pastime for all lovers of democracy, its purpose was to subject fascists and sympathizers in neutral countries to continuous petty persecution, with the object of wasting their time, confusing their affairs, fraying their nerves and getting them into trouble with the local population. Waste his time, 1941. I quote, Here are some of the petty persecutions which Station M recommended. A Nazi could be telephoned at all hours of the night, and when awakened could be apologetically assured that it was the wrong number. The air could be made to disappear mysteriously from his motor tires. Shops could be telephoned on his behalf and asked to deliver large quantities of useless and cumbersome goods, payment on delivery. Masses of futile correspondence could reach him without stamps, so he was constantly having to pay out small sums of money. His girlfriend could receive anonymous letters saying he was suffering from an unpleasant venereal disease or that he was keeping a woman and six children in Detroit. He could be cabled, Apparently, genuine instructions to make long, difficult, and expensive journeys. A rat might die in his water tank, his favorite dog might get lost, and street musicians might be hired to play God Save the King outside his house all night. Unquote. By the way, if this sounds like the tactics of Scientology, why, just remember that L. Ron Hubbard was in the Navy. And if you do not think he was sheep-dipped, why, then I have a large quantity of useless and cumbersome goods to sell you. Along with the Vic Games low-level harassment, Station M was also turning out tons and tons of abusive pamphlets attacking Nazis in various often hilarious ways. One good example was Werner von Levitzau, who was head of the German embassy in Rio. He was on the shortlist to become the next German ambassador to Argentina. He was a tall, half-German, half-Danish superman. He married a crop heiress. Except, she had left him not long after their arrival in Brazil. She alleged that he was impotent, so he was the butt of many jokes in Rio society. Station M exploited them with the following anonymous pamphlet, warning male Brazilians, This man, this Levitzau, is capable of robbing you of your money, your businesses and your country, but never of your wives. He cannot. In 1941, there were plans for a coup in Bolivia to be carried out by Elias Belmonte, who is a violently pro-Nazi Bolivian military attaché, currently in Berlin. It's also worth noting in episode 10, when we talked about Ernst Rome the SA leader training Bolivian military in his in between his adventures with the Nazi party and of course prior to his eventual murder as far as i can tell this could be the first major contact between the nazis and bolivia but it was certainly not the last as there would eventually be a cocaine coup carried out by nazis in the 1980s but in 1941 there was also an impending coup plot this would have been absolutely disastrous for the United States, since Bolivia was the United States' main source of wolfram, which is the ore used to make tungsten, tungsten being a crucial ingredient in steel and arms manufacturing. Stevenson sent H. Montgomery Hyde, The aforementioned author of Room 3603, who was one of the BSE secret agents, he sent Hyde to La Paz to try to head off the coup. The British agents stole evidence of the coup in the form of a letter written by Elias Belmonte. Hard asterisk on this Belmonte letter. British agents sent the Belmonte note to the United States so the State Department could present it to the Bolivian government. The Bolivian government declared a state of emergency, a state of siege no less, and they rounded up all the Bolivian Nazi sympathizers and deported the German nationals. These preventative measures kept Bolivia from going pro-Axis, and it prepared the climate for the Pan-American Conference at Rio six months later, where Brazil and 18 other Latin American countries broke with the Axis powers, and banded themselves together in a common scheme of hemisphere defense. According to U.S. Secretary of State Sumner Wells, this decision, Latin America breaking with the Axis, was a decision that saved the world. Later on, every country in South America except Chile and Argentina would declare war on Nazi Germany or break off diplomatic and commercial relations. no small part thanks to the efforts of Stevenson and the BSC, though again by no means exclusively. Another op that they managed to pull off was the closing of the Italian Lati airline in Brazil. The Italian Lati planes, which flew regularly between Europe and Brazil, carried German and Italian diplomatic bags, couriers, agents, diamonds, platinum, mica, chemicals, and propaganda films and books. Much like before, Station M used a false letter writing campaign. I'm not going to go through all the particulars, but I thought one of the lines from a faked letter they wrote was pretty funny. And this is a letter supposedly written by Italians, talking about the Brazilians, and it reads, The Brazilians are a nation of monkeys, una nazione de chimia, who will dance for anyone who pulls their strings. This faked letter got the president of Brazil so pissed off at the Italian company, he ordered the airline shut down. This, among many other factors, led Brazil to eventually declare war on the Axis in 1942. Without splitting Brazil from the Axis, the United States would not have been able to build their bases in Brazil, and U.S. bases in Brazil were crucial for the invasion of North Africa. The invasion of North Africa was crucial to the rest of the war. Argentina was even trickier, since there were already half a million Germans there, living there. Now, I love jokes about Nazis fleeing to South America as much as the next guy, but people sometimes forget how many Germans, including German Jews, were already in Latin America. Among other things, Argentina was crucial to Britain, too, because they relied on Argentine beef, and because the Germans... And because German interests were so entrenched in the government and military that Stevenson's British security coordination was mainly limited to combating smuggling and basic and spreading basic propaganda. So at the beginning of episode twelve, I talked about FDR showing the public a map of Nazi Germany carving up South America, and a document showing the Nazis' purported plans to abolish all religion. Well, these documents, as well as the Belmonte letter from before in Bolivia, all of these things were invented by Eric Mashwitz at Station M. It's false. No way. Not this time. We created it. Not this time. No. Not this time. It's totally made up. Pure fiction. It's fiction. It's fiction. We made it up. We made this one up. It's a made-up tale. It's a total fabrication. It never happened. It never happened. This one was invented by a writer. Not this time. It never happened. It's false. It never happened. It's a fake. It's fiction. It's an urban legend that never happened. No way. We got you. Not a chance. Not this time. It never happened. It never happened. We made this one up. It's fiction. We made up this one. We made it up. Not this time. Wrong. Not this time. Not this time. You're wrong. Not this time. It never happened. So the book, Room 3603, tries to say that all of these documents were recovered from a courier at the Rio Embassy and that these documents were authentic. There's even fake details about Hitler being pissed off that these documents were leaked. Although, if you read the passage talking about it and you already know the truth, there's sort of a hint at the fabrication. This is a great example of why reading books by spies is so dangerous because honestly they lie constantly it's their job so what can we learn from today we saw british intelligence contriving to create a profit, faking magic basically although magic always exists on a continuum of faking it till you make it sometimes i have advocated the position that intelligence agencies are sometimes behind various spiritual movements. I've asserted this, I think the good people at Subliminal Jihad have argued this as well, but asserting that intelligence agencies are behind different spiritual movements, this this is an example of how it can be done, and was in fact carried out. Next, regarding Vichy France, the British cultivated Jean Moussa, who was an outright criminal, because sometimes, many times, sources and assets Intelligence sources and assets are actually evil people. Let's not forget that former CIA officer John Kiriakou said that most CIA agents would procure a child prostitute for a source or asset. On Program to Chill, we might eventually cover blackmail operations run by intelligence operations later, because you better believe that they happen. Along the same lines, William Stevenson's super spy named codenamed Cynthia, she basically slept her way through the Italian and French embassies. This is the nature of espionage. Sociopaths tend to excel in it, and the work itself probably enhances sociopathic traits in people. On top of that, it's always historically done by the upper classes and or the military and or criminal elements, all of which have more than their share of sociopathic tendencies in the first place. Then we saw how many US companies were complicit with German companies, and did not want to end those profitable relationships. Economic warfare is always inconsistently applied, and would it surprise you that it's inconsistently applied in favor of those in power? Then we got to see an example of the limits of economic warfare, because the BSC could take down sharing of Bloomfield, but not IG Farben, an organization with the resources of an entire nation-state. At the same time, we could see how public opinion can still matter a great deal to these corporations. Another thing, we saw a consistent trend of Nazis coming to the United States to talk to U.S. oil men specifically. That certainly doesn't stop after World War II. We saw in previous episodes how oil money funded the Nazis in the first place. A lot of people know a little bit about the Bush family and their CIA and Nazi connections, but let's just say the entire industry is much more in bed than you would think. Now, I still can't get over the widespread smuggling of butterflies to Nazi Germany, even during wartime. It doesn't make sense that they would be smuggled instead of, I don't know, just waiting on your butterfly shipment until after the war. I'm sure that maybe there could have been secret microfilm hidden or something, but I still can't not suspect something MKUltra related, you know? Then we saw how Latin America, which is often ignored by people studying World War II, was crucial for shifting the global balance of power towards the Allies. And we saw how relatively small-scale operations could have massive effects on the rest of the war. Finally, we got a little glimpse into how British agents basically just make things up. And not just against the enemy. They were inventing intelligence to give to the United States. They probably were inventing intelligence to give to their own governments. One of the biggest problems the CIA had during the Cold War was the inability to trust their own intelligence, because when you teach someone to lie and deceive for a living, they usually don't limit their lying to the times their employer wishes them to lie they'll start lying to their friends, to their family, to their employer, too. In this case, the Belmonte letter led to the prevention of a Bolivian Nazi coup. That's undoubtedly a good outcome. With FDR, the fake map, and the the purported Nazi document discussing the abolition of all world religions, it led to the passing of the Lend-Lease Act and mobilization of U.S. public opinion towards intervention. Arguably still a good outcome although I would still say that it's much more a gray area. The point is that they will lie to get the outcomes they want regardless of the truth, which is not something you want in an intelligence agency where you need the true intelligence regardless of whether it's good or bad news. Worse, the British Security Coordination taught our own police and intelligence institutions to behave in the same way. Now, it can be tempting to do this in wartime, and perhaps it's even justified in wartime. But over the long run, it erodes public trust, it erodes the reputation of institutions, and it eats away at everything like a corrosive acid until you have just a husk of a society. You know, like we have in the United States today. The point is that British intelligence viewed us in the United States like they viewed the Brazilians, as a nation of monkeys. So regarding sources today, still using room 3603 and the book Agents of Influence, as well as the excellent articles at the Spartacus Educational website. Thank you for listening, dear listener. I just want to let you know that I appreciate you. Now I need to be on my way. I'm headed to Camp X in Whitby, Ontario. See you next week, and God bless.